mention, if it wasn't clear, we will have our six o'clock service tonight. And uh, Lord willing, we're planning to have our midweek service at seven. I don't know how long we will um, have to refrain from Sunday school and children's church and nursery and even splitting up into uh, kids clubs and uh, teen meetings and that kind of thing as far as in person. I do want to encourage you to continue uh, to uh, the YouTube has the kids club. Uh, we appreciate all those that are contributing to that. And uh, at least the college Bible study went up again, I think, last night. And so that's there if you want to continue to keep up with it. And the teens have been meeting virtually if you've missed out on that. Um, I, I was blown away. They're playing, um, they're having their Bible study and testimony time and playing Pictionary and having scavenger hunts and doing all of that virtually. And uh, uh, it's amazing uh, what you can do. And we're going to have to, we're going to have to keep to some of that uh, for the time being. But uh, we'll have our, again, our service tonight at 6 and then Wednesday at 7. I do want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 in our Bibles uh, this morning. And if you've been with us on recent Sunday evenings, you know that we've been considering together our philosophy of ministry series. And most recently, uh, we've been uh, considering the privilege that all of us have of participating in fulfilling the Great Commission. God wants all of us to be verbal witnesses, and He sent His Spirit to empower us to do that, and He's promised His own continued presence with us as we do it. And so uh, that's been a theme that all of us should aggressively seek to seize and create opportunities to witness in fulfilling the Great Commission. And we're not done with that consideration. But on this Mother's Day and for several weeks between Mother's Day and Father's Day, we're going to shift to another guidepost in our philosophy of ministry um, series and in our statement. And one of our statements is uh, this, that we believe that a special target of our evangelism and discipleship should be God-honoring marriages that bring up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So as we think about our witnessing and making disciples and fulfilling the Great Commission, a special target of that should be God-honoring marriages that bring up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I want to try to make the case for that this morning, that kind of an emphasis, and even taking you know, multiple weeks out of a year, for instance, to focus there. And... You can look at the themes of marriage and the family uh, throughout the scripture, but if you're going to settle into one particular biblical text right here in Ephesians 5, it would be the place to start. And you can look at verse 22 of Ephesians 5, and you can see the first word tells us that who's being addressed. First of all, verse 22, it's wives. And then uh, verse 25, and the first word tells us it's who? It's husbands being addressed. And then you move into chapter 6, and the first word addresses children. And then uh, verse number 4, and it's not the first word, is it? It's the third word, and that's addressing who? That's addressing fathers. And so uh, you could do the count, but it's 15 straight verses that are addressing the family. 
and addressing the family in this case not by way of just illustration but by way of direct instruction and exhortation and what i want to do this morning is to back up and kind of renew our minds about where this instruction on the family falls in terms of the flow of the book of ephesians because understanding what has preceded this uh, family emphasis and even what comes after this family emphasis will will have a great deal to do with shaping our thinking uh, about our families and so start by turning back to chapter one here in the book of ephesians and i I'm, i referred to the renewing of our minds because we have overviewed ephesians before as we entered into our philosophy of ministry as a church and as we talked about our ultimate objectives and so we're going to retrace that ground and then make specific observations about family relationships but here in ephesians 1 uh, you can see verse 3 begins by pointing to the activity of god the father blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ and now still referring to the father says that he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in christ so so this book begins by emphasizing what god the father is doing and we could we could go on part of his blessing is in verse four his choosing us in verse five his predestinating us under the adoption of children verse six is accepting us and and we could go on but what becomes clear right away even when you start to consider what the father is doing to bless his people what becomes clear is that he's doing it by christ or in christ again in verse three if you just look there at the that last section of the verse he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places and what are the last two words in christ and then you go to verse four according according as he hath chosen us then what chosen us in him and verse five he's predestinated us under the adoption of children by who by jesus christ and then verse six the end of the verse he's accepted us in the beloved and in whom in christ we have redemption through his blood so you see that standing out five times in those in those verses verses three through seven and then multiple additional times throughout the book the emphasis is that all of the blessings that our heavenly father bestows on his children we receive in and through jesus christ it's all through him we experience god the father's blessings through a relationship with christ and before the chapter is over we learn that what the father is doing by christ is intricate related to this gathering together we we're, we're rejoicing in this morning it's intricate related to the church if you go down to verse number 22 we read the statement that that he hath put that's the father hath put all things under his feet the son's feet christ's feet now the father hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the what to the church which is his body the son's body the body of christ the fullness of him that filleth all in all so the church is is the body that functions under the headship of christ 
to accomplish all that the Father has purposed. So what God is doing, he's doing by Christ through the church. And then what we see in, again, this first chapter, and it's interwoven throughout these first three chapters in particular, is that God's doing it for one ultimate purpose. All of what he's doing by Christ through the church, he's doing for one repeatedly stated ultimate objective. Look at verse number six, and and the opening phrase of verse number six says that he's doing this to the praise of the glory of his grace. And then you come down to verse number 12, and it says it this way, that we should be to the praise of his glory. And just to highlight it, verse number 14, and it's really come all the way down to the end of verse 14, right before the start of verse 15, again, we see this phrase, unto the praise of his glory. So, What God is doing by Christ through the church, he is doing for the praising of his own glory. And when you start to talk about the the glory of any object, the glory of any object is, is its attribute, or in some cases the combination of attributes that make that object uniquely excellent. Um, God the Father has determined in this age in which we live that he's going to make his magnificent excellence known in the earth primarily through what is happening in faithful churches made up of believers in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the threads of that theme, again, are interwoven throughout the first three chapters. And we've, we've been here, we're going to have to skip over now for the sake of time and our purpose, but come to the end of chapter three. I just want you to see how uh, they're wrapped up here. And, and come down to verse number 20 of chapter three. We read, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him, which would be God the, God the Father. Now look at these. Unto him be glory in the, what? By who? By Christ Jesus and throughout all ages world without end. All right, so that is, that is to be the ultimate purpose of each and every local church. That we could be something like a telescope lens. We've used that analogy before. That we could be like a telescope lens to a world that seems God. You know what the planets are like to us or the stars are like to us. I mean, you go out on a clear night. And um, you, you know the stars are up there. You see the dot. But I mean, that thing is just, it's barely a little speck right to our eyes. But some of those are planets that are bigger than the earth that we live on. But they seem so small to us uh, because of the distance involved. And to many people in the world, our God seems so small and so far away and i'm sure he probably exists but what impact does that have on my life and and any thought of him is just kind of some supreme being that's out there they don't in many cases know 
uh, anything of what he's really like and the beauty and the magnificence of what he's really like. And God has determined that a church like this be something like that telescope lens that allows people to see not a small, aloof, distant, vague God, but one who is near and one who is magnificent and one who is beautiful and one who is unrivaled in all that he is and all that he does. That's God's purpose for a church. And and brethren, I know, in my rehearsing it again, I, I think, what an, an amazing privilege. And then I also think, what a sober responsibility. How can it be that God would take earthen vessels like your pastor and all of us together, jars of, how is he going to use all of us to that? Well, when he does, it'll be clear. The excellency of the power is not whose. <laughs> it's not ours, but it's, but it's him. And yet he's given us this, this amazing privilege, and he's given us this sober responsibility. And in light of God's purpose now for the church, the apostle in chapter 4 turns to exhorting us about conduct on our part. That contributes to this. So ver chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, and we're tying right into that, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. And when you get to vocation, don't disconnect from all that's come. This isn't talking about my call to preach or your being faithful in your employment. This is talking about us as a church having a calling, having a job. And our calling is what's just been under discussion. Our calling is that, that we walk and conduct ourselves in such a way that the glory of God is made known and praised by the people who look at what's going on in a church. So the new development here of chapter 4 is conduct on the part of a church that contributes to the glorification of God. You walk worthy. We conduct ourselves in a certain way. And what you'll notice in verse number 2 is that the first point of reference for our conduct is the way we interact with one another. So verse 2 says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing. And so you see, I'm not just, you know, making a point here. What's the next two words? Forbearing, literally, one another in love. And the one another, as you read through the rest of, of this context, is not just talking about to all human beings at large. And I'm not discounting that we shouldn't be kind and loving to others. But the one another that's under discussion here is those within the body of which we're a part. This is talking about one another in our church family. And it's obvious in verse 2, there are certain qualities that speak of humility and loving service. You can see again all those lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearance, love. But those things are not an end in themselves. The end is verse 3. We practice all that of that doing what? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We ought to strive by the grace of God to practice those qualities of verse 2 so that our unity might be guarded 
endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. And we ought to strive to guard unity, listen, not just because it's a more enjoyable way to exist, though that is true. You know, even in the blessedness of a church, when there starts to come some of those tensions and difficulties that that the thing that you really want to be the highest of your joyful anticipation starts to come with it a little bit of pain and angst and so on. All right, but, but the instruction that is here is not just work at guarding unity because it's a happier place to be. Work at guarding unity because what? Because the glory of God is at stake. That's the target. Then, the second point of reference for our conduct is still here in chapter 4, and it begins in verse 17. And again, it's easy to spot because of this repetition. Verse 17 says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk. Again, we see that emphasis on our conduct. And in this case, to walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. So the reference to other Gentiles in verse 17 is a reference to unbelievers. You could put whatever label, but I'd at least put that one there. They not only walk at the end of verse 17, look at how they walk, they walk in the vanity of their mind. But you go into verse number 18, they have their understanding darkened, they're alienated from the life of God. Verse number 19, they actually get to the place that they're calloused about living ungodly lives. That's what lasciviousness is. And, and when somebody is, is calloused about that, or, or they're being past feeling, that's callous. Lasciviousness is just kind of unbridled sensuality with greed. Okay? They're just past the point of having sensitivity and feeling. There's no pain of conscience. Okay? The ungodly in our world, they're just given over to really unbridled sensuality and greed, and they're not even really troubled about it. And, and right off the bat here, verse number 17, we're exhorted to walk not as these ungodly. There is a walk of contrast to the lifestyles of the ungodly. They walk without conviction in impurity. Our walk is to be a walk of contrast. It's to be a walk of purity. Not so we feel righteous about our purity, but what's at stake again is what? What's at stake is the glory of God. Walk in contrast to the lifestyles of the ungodly for the sake of the glory of God and the praising of that glory. And then there's a third and final point of reference for our conduct in chapter 5. And you can see verse number 15 where we get the expression, first of all, uh, the expression walk. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools. But the source of that circumspect walk is verse 18. The source of that, the empowerment, the influence of it is a person and it's the person of who? We're not to be drunk with wine, but be filled with who? Be filled with the Spirit. And when someone is under the dominating influence of the Spirit, okay, they're conducting themselves under 
the, the pervasive influence of the Spirit, it can be seen. It can be seen in verse number 19 in the participation in singing with God's people, speaking to yourselves, that's corporately, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and even in the kind of songs that you sing. Singing and making uh, uh, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart. It can be seen in verse 20, in a thankful spirit towards everything, giving thanks always for all things. But it can be seen in verse number 21 in submission to our roles in family relationships. Because now we've come full circle, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, verse 22. Husbands, verse 25. Children, chapter 6, verse 1. Fathers, chapter 6, verse 4. And, and even just by sheer nature of the number of verses. Okay, and you don't always do everything counting, but here we are in an epistle, and he's pointing to marks of the Spirit of God, and you've got a verse for this, and a verse for this, and now you've got 15 for this. You've got 15 of them about the family. Before you get to chapter 5, and the, uh, I'm sorry, verse 5, and the emphasis on the employer-employee relationship. So, with that overview of what's come before the family section, we have to make this observation that the Apostle Paul didn't give us this section as a kind of seminar on how to have a happy family. Okay, Ephesians 5, verse 21 through chapter 6, verse 4, is not about, let's, let's have a family retreat and let's, let's remind ourselves how to have a happy family. Okay, you want that and I want that, but that's not what this is about. This, this isn't, you know, the, the focus and motivation here is not about, to borrow a phrase from a popular mega church guy, this is not about how to have your best life now. Okay? This is, and I'm saying this way, this is not about family being the most important thing. And if, if some of you or your children or whatever, grandkids, if somebody puts that up, please don't think I'm out to get them. I haven't seen anything like that right now, but I have seen it in the past. And if I see it down the road, I'm not going to, you know, send you a note. Do you remember this message? All right, but... But brethren, I want to tell you, it is not about family being the most important thing. It is about submitting to the influence of the Spirit in our families for the sake of the glory of God. This is not about how to have a happy family. This is talking about marriages and families that contribute to the glorification of God. This is about our families contributing to the praising of the unique excellence of our God. Now, our family... I'm arguing for it, verses, you know, 15 verses in this section. Our family is important. It is significant. It is a big deal, but it's a big deal primarily because it's about the honor and glory of God. Now, that's a primary observation to make about what comes before this family section, all right? But now we want to look at what comes after 
and there's a lot less ground that comes after, but it's still significant. Because what comes after it is verse 10, and beginning in verse 10, we're exhorted to get ready for what? I know what you'd say right away in verse 10. I'll say it this way, get ready for battle. All right, verse 10 might sound like just a general encouragement to be strong, which it is. But verse 11 starts talking about putting on what? Armor. And then standing in a battle against the devil. Okay, and, and that's not a passing reference because the discussion of this armor and this battle goes down at least through verse number 18. And, and we don't want to disconnect even this battle section from the rest of the book, all right? What is the war really over? What is the battle really about? The battle is really about the glory of God being known in the earth through what? Through this vehicle called the church. This is what the devil in his cohorts in verse number 12, this is what they will battle against with everything in them. And part of what we have in the book leading up to this point is an indication of the battle fronts. Okay? If the devil and the principalities and powers and these evil influences and of people in high places, if they, if, if they are going to battle with everything in them against the glory of God being known in the earth, what are some of the battle fronts? Well, some of them, some of them will be <laughs> that the devil will attack even our awareness of all that we are and have in Jesus Christ. If he can get the church sidetracked into multiple other things and we miss growing in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and, and, and we don't know who we are and what we are in Christ, the devil's getting a foothold there. But in addition to that, brethren, the devil will attack the unity of our church. And the devil will attack lifestyles that are marked distinctly different from the world in purity and honesty and integrity. And the devil will attack spirit-filled relationships all the way around, but he will attack spirit-filled relationships in our what? In our homes, in our families. Now, we have... We have different personalities and we have different opinions and really, quite frankly, that's, that's the glory of a church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if we were all eyeballs, you know, if we were all a foot, if we were all a hand, if we were all an ear, I mean, a giant eyeball rolling down the street is not a body, right? I mean, it's just a monstrosity. But, but, so we have eyeballs and ears and hands and feet, and we're different, but sometimes those different personalities and different ways of looking at things and different opinions, okay, sometimes those things can start to grade on each other a little bit. 
I mean, some of you are a little odd, you know, and, <clears throat> and, and we do some odd things, and you wonder, why is the pastor like that? And, and, and we can kind of get that way, and so sometimes there starts to be a little rub, and we have a flesh, but honestly, there is more behind our battles with disunity than that. The devil's not a cartoon figure. He's very real. And there's a battle over unity because of the battle over the glory of God. And, and the resources today of our godless culture, I mean, the mass media and all of the ways that, that the God of this world can take the world and, and preach his godless message through the world, those are as bright and enticing and as pervasive as ever. And again, we have a depraved nature. But there is more behind our battles for purity than just the world out there. Okay, there's a very real God of this world. And sometimes, could I get, you know, get, get even more specific here? Sometimes men don't think like women. Have you ever noticed that? And, and sometimes women don't think like men. And, and that can affect marriages. And sometimes there are generation gaps between parents and children. And us parents never think so because we're as cool as we've ever been. I mean, we are barely out of our teenage years and we are not, you know, we haven't lost it. Right? But, but sometimes there are real, oh, and the kids are like, oh, dad, you are so far out. And, and there's, there's gaps between parents and children, but honestly, there is more behind the struggles in marriages and parent-child relationships than just men are different than women, and there's a generation there. Okay, there, there's an attack of an evil one. There's a very real satanic attack on unity and purity and honorable relationships but all of that is because there's an attack on the glory of God. And, and if you really believe these things, and we don't need more to believe it than the Bible says so, right? But we're sobered seeing it again, and, and we believe it because the Bible says it, and we care to make a difference. What do we do? Well, the, the first thing that we will do, and I'm, I'm just not giving counsel today, the first thing that we would do from the text is that we would really be earnest about our relationship to the Word of God. Why am I saying that? Well, we're not going to take the time like we did. Two summers ago, we actually spent our time in the armor here in Ephesians 6. But what we saw is every piece of the armor is intricately tied to the Bible. So the first one there in verse 14, having your loins girt about with truth, that, that broad leather belt okay, that went around the midsection and tied all the other pieces of the armor, that we saw was kind of a broad knowledge of the whole counsel of the Word of God the themes of various sections of our Bible and being able to see how those themes relate to each other. 
and how they tie all the other pieces together. The, the righteousness that is the next one there, You're the, having on the breastplate of righteousness, a straight conformity to a standard, meeting my obligations. Where, where do I know what righteousness really is and where I get it? I get it in the Word of God, and, and I can just continue to, to walk through, all the way through, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What, where is the gospel found? Paul said, I declare unto you how that Christ died for our sins according to the what? Scriptures. And was buried and rose again the third day according to the, the Scriptures. What the Scripture states and explains of the significance. And when you take the shield of faith, you're not taking a positive mental attitude. You're not just trying to say, gut it out. The faith is the faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the what? Okay, so I'm just trying to make the case again that, brethren, if you're serious, hey, there's a battle. There's a battle for unity. There's a battle for purity. There's a battle for spirit-filled relationships. There's a battle to know who I am and what I am in Christ and all that he is to me. There's a battle for all of that, but the battle is ultimately for the glory of God. I want to rise up and I want to stand and I want to contribute to God being known. How do I do that? First thing is, I've got to really get in the Word of God. And I've got to know it. I've got to know it in its breadth, but I need to know it in its detail and how to use it. There is no life no marriage, no family, no church that is going to be protected if our minds are not regularly renewed by the Scripture. This is where the armor is found. But in addition to your relationship to the Bible, if you, if you believe the battle is real and you care to make a difference, then verse number 18, you will be earnest to wage war in what? In prayer. And we have in our, in our English, we have the first word is praying. And actually in the Greek text, the first word is, is the Greek word dia, which is the idea of through. And what it's communicating is the, the flow from verse 14 right up to this point is indicating that every piece of that armor is to be put on in the context of prayer. Okay, know your Bible and use the Bible, but knowing and using the Bible is all, to be, is all to be done in the context of prayer. It's not just the Bible alone. It's the Bible in the context of praying. And prayer that you can see it, it's going on at all seasons, praying always, and, and there's all kinds of prayer, uh, and it's led of the Spirit, and you can even see it's something tenacious, there, there's watchfulness and persevering. And so you can think of praying in, in its various forms. Sometimes our prayer is more devotional uh, and expressing thanksgiving and praise. Um, sometimes prayer is more seeking guidance and direction, asking for wisdom. And, um, and sometimes it is, it is really just pleading even for some kind of provision that is needed. But brethren, in the context, again, of the book, and now all of what's at stake, often prayer will involve this. 
It will involve a wartime mentality that is pleading with God for firepower in conflict with a mortal enemy. I mean, sometimes prayer is going to be like going to war and saying, God, I don't have it, but you have what is needed, and the enemy is real, and I'm no match for it, but you are a match. In fact, that enemy is no match for you. So display yourself, God, in doing what we can't do. And the urgency or, or maybe the absence of it in our just overall mentality of even what I think my, my Christian life is about and my church life is about and my family is about, okay, the, the urgency I have about that, my engagement with the Scripture, our prayer lives, may well be an indicator of just how much our focus is the battle for the glory of God, or we're just kind of, you know, doing our, you know, American dream thing with Christianity on top. And as we return to thinking about the family, again, in this context, on this day, and I'm going to even just think about the parent-child relationship primarily this morning, but I, I just wonder this, I'll ask you dads, first of all, do any of you dads have, do any of you have children that really need to still learn how to humble themselves and lovingly serve others for the sake of God-honoring family unity? Any of you dads burned about that as your family trying to get out the door this morning? <laughs> Okay, or last night, or wherever it is. We've got that conquered in our family, but I know some of you, you know, may have. <laughs> Any of you moms sense a battle in, in the heart of your teenager, your college-age person for right thinking and right positions toward the inroads of a godless culture and its values? And any of you moms have a, a real sense of just urgency and intensity about the inroads of this enemy. And feel like there's, there's, there's still ground to be gained in your kids' lives. Do, do any of us see in our children, maybe even at the youngest of ages, a struggle with obedience and honor? And, and I mean, they have a flesh by itself, and there's an ind independent spirit of our age. They get the flesh that's clearly displayed when they're younger, and there's societal encouragement the longer they grow. Hey, you're your own person. You don't have to, you don't have to be what your mom and dad tell you to be. Right? And, and, and there's all of that, and you sense that they're struggling. They want to honor, and yet there's this pull. Any of us burden that, that our kids come to the place themselves living God-centered lives that are consumed with battling where need be for the advancement of the glory of God instead of just thinking about their life as comfortable, convenient existence in the name of Christianity. Okay, the fact is those burdens are everywhere here, aren't they? 
And if we have those burdens, the, the first interest that I, I should have is to really explore what kind of relationship do I have and do my children have to the Word of God, to its preaching, to its reading, to its meditating, to its living. Do they really know the Bible? Is it saturating their mind? Do they know how to use it? Are they living it? Do they believe it? That's where every piece of the armor is found. But alongside of that interest, brethren, must be our own praying that God would graciously do what only he can do to teach them to love and humbly serve, to compel them to bear the reproach and walk in contrast to the ungodly. To nurture their faith in God to the point that they will trust God to work even through you as imperfect parents. But they will obey and honor you as parents because they trust God. And to plead with God to give, to give them a God-centered, God-motivated vision for life. Hey, that's what we all need. I'm I'm serious. That's what I walk around my neighborhood multiple times this week praying for God to do to continue to capture my kids' hearts with something I can't infuse into them. I minister to that end, but there's something he has to do. And we pray to that end. Now, brethren, this kind of engagement will be a gauge in terms of of our parenting and the degree to which we are really, we're really God-centered ourselves and God-motivated in our parenting versus settling for, well, they're pretty productive citizens and, you know, we're, we've avoided the huge pitfalls. And, and I have so much room to grow in this area and none of us have arrived, so nobody ought to leave here feeling, I'm just terrible, horrible, throw in the towel. No, this is what growth is, right? Um, grow in allowing the Spirit to take on more and more of an influence. But, but let us really purpose to, to plead with God and then to take every step of our stewardship that, that he would move in the hearts of our church family and that we as mothers and fathers would get help from God ourselves to engage in warfare, praying in this battle for the glory of God. We, we have, I mean, this section, if I give the message a title and I'm all the way at the end, it would just be this, families in the battle for the glory of God. Families in the battle for the glory of God. That's where this teaching comes. I want to ask you to turn. We don't often just do this. You know what? You don't have to turn. I think we're going to have it up there. If you want to turn in your hymnal, it's 456. And, and I'm certainly going to give time for us to be personal and reflect on the Lord. But this is, this is the song that has been in my own mind and heart is I need thee every hour. Most gracious Lord. And um, let's, let's stand together. Is it up here? It's going to take a minute. Let's stand together. We're going to sing. 
I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. Go ahead, Mrs. Whitehead. We'll... I'll help us. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can be afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. It's me now, my Savior, I come to We'll sing this last verse a cappella on the fourth. Just bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to let our pianist play softly that same song and give it up.